we've been talking a lot about Bible school uh, today, and I think that's kind of understandable because it's a, a huge undertaking. And again, I just want to thank everybody that's, uh, that has taken part in some way or is going to take part in some way um, because I know it's, it's really there's a lot of work involved. Uh, it's a sacrifice of time and energy, maybe money. But again, the reason that we do it is not some kind of Christian busy work. The reason that we do it is because we're trying to build into the younger generations a foundation of faith. And that's, that's extremely important. And the Bible, whenever it talks about uh, doing that, it uses the image of sowing seeds and watering seeds and hopefully uh, harvesting seeds. And no matter what role we play in Bible school, sometimes we think, well, uh, if I can't, uh, you know, if, if I don't feel comfortable leading the class, then I'm, I'm not important in this. But that's, that's not the case at all because everybody that's involved in it in some way is involved in the same work. And so, again, I just wanted to say thank you for all that. Um, the person who plays a major part in many of the days of Bible school this week, or, yeah, this week is the Apostle Paul. So, so to kind of prime the pump, we're going to talk about his conversion. We're going to talk about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Now, understand whenever I talk about Saul or Paul, I'm talking about the same guy. Uh, he's called both things in the New Testament, so sometimes you might hear me call him Saul, sometimes you might hear me call him Paul. Same guy. And what we're going to look at, like I said, is his conversion. That's, that's when he gets saved. That's when he experiences salvation. That's when he goes from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from somebody who hated Christ to somebody who loved him, from being an unbeliever to a believer. And as incredible as his story is, and I don't mean stories in like a fairy tale, I mean we all have a story. And he has a story to tell. But as incredible as his story is, he is not the hero of this account. As with all the accounts of Scripture, uh, we need to remember to ask ourselves, what does this tell us about God? How does this help us know Christ a little bit better? So we're going to be in Acts chapter 26, and we're going to pick up reading in verse 4. It'll be up on the screen in just a little bit if you uh, don't have your Bible with you. But, uh, but his conversion, Saul's conversion, happened way back in chapter 9. And you might be wondering, why are we picking up in chapter 26? Because even though it happened in chapter 9, he retells his conversion experience. He's kind of like giving a testimony. And he gives his testimony two or three times in the book of Acts in different, uh, different situations. And we're going to look at his defense of the gospel in Acts 26. Where we pick up, he's standing before a Roman governor by the name of Felix. And uh, he's been in custody, Roman custody for about two years, a little bit over. And he's also giving his defense before uh, a person that he calls King Agrippa. Now that is King Herod Agrippa II. Okay, so if you have your Bibles uh, opened up to Acts 26, please stand with me as we begin reading in verse 4. Acts chapter 26 and verse 4, uh, we have several verses. He says, So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion, and now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. That's the resurrection. The promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priest, 
But also, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, even to foreign cities. While so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the, high, of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may, be, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Thank you. you. May be seated. Now, there are, there's a lot of stuff here. And the first thing that I want you to see is that you're neither too good nor too bad to be saved. You're neither too good nor too bad to be saved. And understand, when, I'm talking, when I talk about being saved, I've talked a while back about what salvation is. Uh, but in particular, I mean experiencing the salvation that God provides through Christ alone, through His death, burial, and resurrection. I'm talking about having our sins against God forgiven. I'm talking about the new birth. I'm talking about uh, being reconciled to God. I'm talking about going from heaven instead of going to hell. And no matter how good you are or how good you think you are, you're not too good to be saved. You're not too good to be saved. Now, on the surface, that may seem like kind of an odd thing to say, that we're not too good to be saved. Why would somebody think that they are too good to be saved? Well, it's been my observation, and probably yours too, that a lot of people who think that they have things figured out really don't think that they need the Lord. They think that they have their ducks in a row and, and, uh, and everything is going well for them, and so they don't need Jesus. But I want you to look again at verses 4 and 5. You'll notice what he says in here. He says that he had spent his whole life among his people in that Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, of course, he was born in, in Tarsus, but Jerusalem was the kind of like the center of religious and moral instruction and all that in, uh, in, in the day. And so he was spending a, a, a massive amount of time, probably went there about 13 to 16 years old, and he was tutored under a man named Gamaliel. And so he, was, he spent a lot of time in, in the right place, and on top of that he said he was a Pharisee. We have kind of a negative view of Pharisees because of all the stuff that Jesus said about them. Um, but remember, they were, they were the ultra-conservatives of their day. I mean, these were the guys that uh, they were orthodox, uh, they, they did their best to follow all the laws of the Old Testament. Remember, there are over 600 laws in the Old Testament, over 600 commands. And so they tried to follow all those. But on top of those, um, all the rabbis had given their interpretations and instructions about the Old Testament. And so the Pharisees tried to follow not only what God said, but also all these rules that the rabbis had laid down. And on top of that, um, they were very, very studious to do everything. Like um, tithing. Okay, I know that's... Uh, you hear tithing, oh, he's going to talk about money. Here's what they did. They would... They, if they had a garden, an herb garden, they would tithe of their herbs. So you, you imagine they had, a, they had some tomatoes come up. And of course, they didn't plant tomatoes, but we can identify with tomatoes. 
the plant had ten, ten tomatoes on it, they bring one up to the temple. If they found a dime on the street, they give a penny of it in the offering plate. I mean, they were very, very careful to do all this stuff. They would fast regularly a couple times a week. Um, historical accounts tell us that not only uh, that, but, but here's some of the stuff they would do to kind of keep their bodies under control. Whenever they would go to bed, some of them would lay on real narrow planks of wood. And they would have these planks of wood, not on the ground, but they'd have them up there so that whenever they would roll over in their sleep, they would fall off. And it would wake them up, and it would remind them that they need to be awakened to prayer. Others of them would lie on gravel, and they put thorns all around them, so if they turned to one side or the other, it would poke them. Uh, they, they were what you might call ascetics. They, they would treat the bar, body harshly. That's the group that Paul was part of before he got saved. Now, on top of that, he gives us other information about his former life. As I said before, he was educated under Gamaliel. That would have been like having an Ivy League education back then. Uh, he had good parents, a good education. He was zealous for his faith. But as good as this man was, he was still lost in his sin. He was without God and without hope in the world. He was religious, but lost. In today's world, we'd say uh, he, he sat on the church pew, but he wasn't saved. He had his ducks in a row, but he had them in the wrong pond. Okay, he, he thought he could earn favor with God. He thought, I'm doing enough good stuff, it's going to outweigh my bad stuff I'm doing. Therefore, I don't need any kind of outside help. But listen, no one is so good that they don't need a Savior. Why? Because the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible also says that all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. So all these things that Paul could boast in, all these accomplishments, were all filthy rags before God. And if anyone had a reason to boast and trust in his accomplishments, it was Saul of Tarsus. But he still needed saved too. But not only are you not too good to be saved, but you're also not too bad. Look again at, uh, at what he says. He says that uh, he, he goes into talking about all these bad things that he's done in verses 9 to 11. Now some people have the mistaken idea that, that Jesus only died for a certain number of people. That, that he only died for people who are maybe not good, but not as bad as what they are. They think that they have sinned past uh, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. That, yeah, maybe Jesus died for somebody who grew up in church, but he didn't die for somebody who's involved in the stuff that I've been involved in. But look at verses 9 to 11. Paul was so zealous for his faith, which at the time was Judaism, that it drove him to persecute and to kill Christians. Look again at, at what he said. What, what all things did he do? Well, first it says that he locked Christians in prison. When they were putting, uh, when they were being put to death, he cast his vote against them. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the court that would have had the power to do that. Um, but what it likely means is he used his influence whenever he could against Christians. Okay, it's, it's kind of like if we agree with something, we might say, "Oh, well, he has my vote," or "That has my vote." That's not to mean that we actually vote. It, it just means that we're going along with it. In, uh, in verse 11, he says that he had Christians punished in the synagogue. And what they would do is they would scourge them. And scourging was, uh, they would, in, in the Roman world, they would stretch people out kind of like this. And then they would take uh, ropes or leather straps and they would beat them on the back. Or they would take rods and beat them on the back. He would use violence and threats of violence against these people to try to get them to blaspheme. And, of course, he's, he's a, an observant Jew. He's not going to try getting them to blaspheme against the Father. 
But he's trying to get them uh, to, to renounce Christ or to curse him. And look again at verse, um, verse 11. He says, I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. The terminology that he, has, that he uses here it has the idea of being driven mad. He was almost insane in his zeal to stamp out Christianity. And if they fled, he wasn't content just to give them on the run. He would chase them to foreign cities. That's what he was doing when he's going to Damascus. Think of it this way. We say, I, I, I'm, I'm having trouble picturing that in today's world. He was the ISIS of the New Testament. You think about ISIS in the Middle East right now. He was the one that was hunting down Christians and doing terrible things to them. And if anybody, in our way of thinking, if anybody was disqualified from God's grace, it would be somebody like that, right? But that's precisely who God saved. That's precisely who Jesus died for. God showed him grace, and he saved him. And I make no mistake, Paul always remembered his former life. He always remembered all the stuff that he had done, and it shamed him. It kept him humble. But God redeemed this man, and he can redeem you. If you let him. You say, well, I, you don't know the stuff I'm involved in. No, but God does. Jesus knew before he ever went to the cross. You're not doing worse than what Paul did. And God saved him. No sin is too deep to go beyond God's mercy. You're neither too good nor too bad to be saved. Now, as I said, Saul's story, Paul's story is interesting, but he's not the hero. What does this tell us about God? What does it tell us about Jesus? Well, first, first thing it tells us about the Savior is he's a pardoning Savior. He's a pardoning Savior. Jesus took this man who's rebelling against him and forgave his sin. We, we, sing, uh, we sing the song, Whiter Than Snow. That's, way, that's what Jesus did. He washed him whiter than snow. He cleansed him. He reconciled him to God. Not because Saul had earned it. I mean, he was, he was trying to kill Christ's people. Now, of course he hadn't earned it. But instead, he did it because of his amazing grace that we just sang about. We also see he's a personal Savior. Look again at verse 14. What does it say? And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said to him, Who are you, Lord? And, he, and the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. We see that not only is he a pardoning Savior, he's a personal Savior. He spoke to Saul in his native tongue, in the Hebrew dialect. At the time, that was Aramaic. That was the same language that Jesus was speaking when he was on earth. He called him by name. He knew him. And did he notice he didn't just say, Saul, what did he do? He repeated himself, didn't he? Now, you think that's not uh, significant, but when you read through the Old Testament, you'll notice that uh, that God often does that at a kind of like a monumentous occasion. So, for instance, when Abraham was getting ready to sacrifice Isaac, what did he say? Abraham, Abraham. At one point, he's talking to Jacob. He repeated his name. When uh, Samuel, you remember, young Samuel was in the uh, was in the the temple, and Eli was in there, and and Samuel heard Samuel, Samuel, and he thought that Eli was calling him. It was God calling him. These are, are monumental events at the burning bush. God said, Moses, Moses. He knew Saul's name. And that repetition says something big's getting ready to happen. 
But then not only is he personal because he knows him, look at, look at verse 15. He says, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. He knows you, and he wants to have a personal relationship with you. See, being, being a Christian is not about religion. It's not giving mental assent to a set of beliefs. But it's about a relationship. Our relationship with God is broken by our sin. But, <coughs> excuse me. But we can be reconciled to God through Christ's death on the cross. He is a pardoning Savior. He's a personal Savior. And last, I want you to see in verse 12, he's a pursuing Savior. Saul was on his way to hunt down Christians when Jesus met him. He wasn't in church. He wasn't what we would call a seeker. And where was? And a lot of times we just read over these things and don't even think about what time of day did this happen? Look at verse 13. It was at midday. It was noon. Now think about it. They're in a desert climate, and it is hot. And at noon, you're going to stay inside. If you're in Mexico, Scarlett and I went to Mexico a while back, and let me tell you, when it gets to be about noon, you go try to take a siesta. Right? And it's the same way over in the Middle East. When it's, when it's noontime, you try to stay out of the heat. But here, he, the, only time, the only reason you get out in that heat is because there's an emergency going on. It's a necessity. And so here's Paul, driven almost insane with his hatred of Christians, and he's so fixated on hunting them down that he and his companions are out in the blazing heat of the desert at the worst time possible. And when he was still in his sin, in the, in, in the midst of it, that's when Christ met him. He didn't wait for Paul to come to his senses. He didn't wait for Paul to get his life straightened out. He didn't wait for any of that stuff. He pursued him and met him. He met him right where he was. Now, you'll notice in verse 14, it says that it is hard for you to kick against the goads. What on earth does that mean? Well, back then, they had what were called ox goads. And if you were plowing, and they have a lot of clay over there, and so if you were plowing, there's a big old pointed stick that you'd have. There was an ox goad, and, and you'd use that to scrape the clay off the, off the plow. But more to the point, they began to use it for other things too. Like if you take an ox and you go to yoke him up for the first few times, the ox didn't like that. And so he would kick, and he'd buck and try to get out from under that yoke. And so what they do is they take this long pointed stick, and they put it, that pointed end, right near the ox's feet. And so when the ox would start to kick, he'd kick that pointed stick and it'd hurt, and he'd start to realize, hey, I'm going to have to stop doing that. That doesn't feel very good. If they'd hook him up to a wagon, they'd, they would put a bar on the front of their wagon that had all these, like, spikes is what we call them. And so you hook an, an ox up to a yoke, and it'd start kicking at the wagon. It's going to kick those spikes, and it's going to realize... I'm going to have to stop kicking against that. They had to learn submission the hard way. And that's what this figure of speech meant. It meant somebody is opposing something that's inevitable. Today we talk about beating our head against the wall. Okay? It's, 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 it's not going to hurt your object of hostility. It's only going to hurt the one banging their head, right? And that's, that's what is happening. God's church is growing. God's doing His work. It's inevitable. And if you're resisting that, you're kicking against the goads. 
You're banging your head against the wall. And he was resisting God at every turn, but Christ still kept pursuing them. And finally, the last thing I want you to see here is, uh, is that we should allow ourselves to be used by God. Jesus had something specific that he wanted Saul to do. He said, I want you to be a minister and a witness. And if you're a Christian, he has something in mind for you to do too. Now that's not saying that he wants you to be a minister, as in like a, a, a pastor. Maybe he does. But he does want you to be a witness. He wants you to be a witness right where you are. He's not saying you have to be another Saul, aren't you glad? He's not saying you have to be a Billy Graham. He's not saying that you have to be any other Christian. He's saying, I want you to be a Christian where you are. I want you to be a Christian at your work. I want you to be my witness at school. I want you to be a witness I want you to be a witness at the store. I want you to be a witness in your home. Allow yourself to be used by God. And let's face it, that's a scary idea. It's scary to think, what if I can if if I turn control of my life over to God and he does what he's wanting to do, what if he sends me and we always come up with one place deepest where darkest Africa is what we always think. Maybe he will do that. But you know what? There's a good chance that, that he won't. Maybe he'll send you to sunny Hawaii. Or maybe he'll just send you to Lawrence County. You know what I'm saying? He, he's not sending everybody to the foreign mission field. He's calling you to be a witness where you are. And God has a plan for each of us. Now I wonder, do you know what his plan for your life is? You say, well, no. Do you know what it is for your life? Um, not very much. Because God doesn't give us a road map. I wish he did. But if he did, we'd probably be too scared to do it, right? He doesn't say, I'll give you a road map, but he says, I'll walk with you each step of the way. You say, well, I don't know what it is. I don't have any idea what God wants me to do now. Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock. Ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking and knock and keep knocking. And it will be answered you. It will be open to you. Maybe you don't know his plan because you don't know him. You don't have a personal relationship with him. Let me tell you what he wants you to do. You say you're going to be so. You're, you're going to tell me what God wants, yeah? Because he already said it in his word. Here's what he said. He said, "I'm not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance." That means he wants you to be saved. When's he want you? To do it? Today is the day of salvation. How do you do it? If you'll confess Jesus is Lord with your mouth. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. If you've never done that, would you do it today? Will you meet the risen Christ because you're neither too good nor too bad to be saved?